This episode, we're going to talk about the history of the Fort Vancouver area and how it led to the founding of the Hidden Brick Company in 1871, who manufactured the bricks that are at the center of this story. We're also going to start getting more into the French-Canadian nuns surrounding this weirdness and starting to lay out the web of synchronicity surrounding them. I'm Sarah. I do what I want. And I'm Andrea. And I like that. And we are... Two Two Witches. Thanks again to you, Weird Listener, for joining us for another shot of Brick Mojo. We're going to get right into it. Today, we're going to give you a brief history lesson into the early settlement of the Vancouver, Washington area. The establishment of Fort Vancouver in 1825 by the English Hudson Bay Company is what brought the nuns at the center of this brick story, the Sisters of Providence from Montreal, Canada, to the Vancouver, Washington area. Initially, the Hudson's Bay Company settled in the Astoria, Oregon area at the Pacific coast and came east from there to stake a land claim. What's important to know right now is that the French fur traders came here to Oregon to work for the Hudson Bay Company. The Hudson's Bay Company refused to sell alcohol to the indigenous people or purposely exploit their relationship for their own gain, like other companies in the area were prone to do, which earned respect and allyship from the Catholics. This is obviously a good thing, but it's important to realize that the Catholics still did evangelicalize them and perpetuated the noble savage stereotype. They looked at the indigenous people with fear or even pity in general. We're going to discuss this aspect of native exploitation and death later in episodes and how these nuns and white settlers continually benefited from an unequal relationship with these indigenous people. If there's a native or indigenous investigator that would like to come and talk to us about the lens of their tradition and how it affects their lives and experiences with the paranormal, we would love to talk with them as well. So please get in touch with us. Again, we don't want to just report on people of color's experiences. We want to provide the platform for them to tell their own stories. Vancouver at the time was part of the Oregon Territory territory, which is across the Columbia River from Portland, dividing up the states of Oregon and Washington. At the time, the Columbia River is undammed and very wild. It was called the Mississippi of the West. It was extremely challenging to get here via the Pacific Ocean, which they actually called the Graveyard of the Pacific. In fact, Mother Joseph and the rest of the Catholic Brigade on their way out thought they truly were going to die when the keel of this ship they were in hit the bottom of the Pacific. Port Vancouver's location is a space with a large natural water boundary. There are lots of theories about water stirring up paranormal activity, and Hellyer discussed how Point Pleasant and other locations on the water add to the liminality of the area and high strangeness pockets can develop. High strangeness, that's what we like. So Fort Vancouver itself, it was incredibly liminal. People were going in and out all the time. Super wild time of major possibility. You could get rich or you could die, you know. If this history backstory interests you, you could go to brickmojo.net for more of the history on Fort Vancouver and Oregon City for a deeper look. Fort Vancouver is an important hub critical to the West. Supplies for settlers are brought here through the Hudson Bay Company, Hudson Bay Company also was making bricks in the Fort Vancouver area in the 1830s and importing them from Europe. So Fort Vancouver is notoriously haunted, particularly the red brick Fort Vancouver Post Hospital. That's one of the creepiest buildings I've ever been around. There's a deeper look at the building and what's going on there on BrickMonjo.net as well on the Fort Vancouver page. The fort's location on the Columbia is bustling. It's as liminal as it gets. Letters are sent to the Bishop of Montreal about it being godless. Babies are being abandoned. There's a lack of medical care. This chaos leads to the immediate need for social services in the area. 
The Hudson's Bay Company asked Catholics for priests by having French-Canadian doctor John McLaughlin write to his friend, the Catholic bishop in Montreal. Well, turns out John McLaughlin is just one of these strange blood ties that my family ends up having. He's a distant cousin of my husband, and his ghost is supposedly seen still haunting parts of Oregon City. He's been seen wandering the Pioneer Center there, his historic home that used to be in the Fort Vancouver was later moved to Oregon City after he fell out with the Hudson's Bay Company for being too charitable. People claim that it's his ghost that they see there in Oregon City, and he's pretty distinctive, being six foot five with a wild mop of white hair. One of the themes that we keep seeing play out again and again for me personally throughout this is very tall men and women with white hair. So Father Blanchett, yep, as in the Father Blanchett from the park we just talked about in the last episode, and the Catholics settle the area. A nun called Mother Joseph of the Sacred Heart arrives in December of 1856 as a result of that call for help from John McLaughlin, and it's clearly no accident that she was the nun sent. The first detail of Mojo's Pioneering West that really caught my attention is that an ancestor of my maternal great-grandmother named Joseph Sadler saved Mother Joseph and the other sisters from probably certain peril when they arrived in New York City from Montreal. On her trip, Mother Joseph was carrying in her pocket Mother Gamelin's copy of The Rules of St. Vincent de Paul. When we talk about Emily, we will discuss the reason this book was so important to her, but basically it was her final test before she was allowed to be a nun with the newly formed Sisters of Providence in Montreal, Canada. Mother Joseph's deep connection with her deceased sister, Mother Emily Gamelin, continued throughout her life, well beyond Emily's death. This makes sense given that the loss of Emily was referred to by her as the greatest sorrow of her life. Mojo perceived these repeated patterns as signs of divine providence, with Emily reaching her from beyond the grave. A story describing her trip west in the Bell in the River reflects this belief. At St. Jean, they reached a busy little metropolis. This was the terminal of Canada's first railroad, and through it, their foundress, Madame Emily Gamelin, had gone 13 years earlier on her first trip to the United States. It was already five years since Mother Gamelin had been laid to rest, but the name of St. Jean evoked her memory. To Sister Joseph, there came the remembrance of that strong, controlled woman whom she had loved and understood so well. In the eight years they had been together, Sister Joseph felt her presence now, approving and blessing this trip to Oregon. Surely their mother had spoken. Eight years. They only knew each other eight years, right? But it was the greatest sorrow of her life and continued to guide her. So that relationship must have been probably the most important one that she ever had, truthfully. And immediate. Yeah. And, you know, she was only 20 when her dad brought her there. Yeah. And Gamelin was quite a bit older than her, and they just clicked. And that whole thing mm-hmm. just is very much a synchronicity story like everything else. And, and we'll get into that and the relationship that these two women had and how they just sort of understood each other and came from, you know, similar backgrounds and had similar worldviews about taking care of the poor and self-sacrifice. And when everything got really, really hairy, when they were still in Montreal and typhus was happening and all these terrible things were happening, they were the two that went in when no one else did. When everyone else was scared, they were the two. Yep. And they were courageous and... It deadly. Yes. Mojo made it out and Emily did not. Yes. So that's a very interesting lesson to us both about self-care and boundaries and burning out because she literally worked herself to death. I was like, who are you describing there, Sarah? Yeah. Yeah. Not the two of us who have waited over a decade to get, you know, surgeries that will prevent us from being in pain every day of our (laughs) lives. Um, You know? So again, like, it all goes back to just, just handle your shit. Just do your shit. You know what I mean? And the the hard stuff had to be done, and they did it. They did. And they're talking to us. They are. So I'm getting the message, you know, 
deal with your crap. It'll be fine. It's hard. I'm also getting the message. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's slow and it has to be drilled into me, but I'm getting it. But one of the things that makes Mother Joseph so totally relatable to me and probably Andrea too is that besides doing these superhuman things, she had a huge case of imposter syndrome. Huge. She did not feel she was worthy to be put in charge, taking some time to accept her fate. The new name sounded through her thoughts like a summons and a benediction. Neither pleadings nor tears had been able to shake his decision that she could be the religious superior. Of course, that's the discussion about when she was named Mother Joseph. And she's like, um, what? Like, I... Because she always felt it was her divine path. Her purpose was to go west and go to Oregon. And she'd been denied a couple of times before. Mm-hmm. So initially she was thrilled to go and then immediately started to panic. And <laughs> not totally understand how that is. Yeah. Woohoo! Let's do a podcast. It's going to be awesome. And then you start and then everything <laughs> just goes sideways. You're like, oh, shit, what did I do? I thought I could handle this. Like, it, it tracks. It, it totally tracks. It absolutely tracks. We put this out there and then we got a little freaky and then nothing would work. And we got a little more freaky. And now we've brought it all back to center. <laughs> so... You know, she did this alternating of, of being terrified to come to Oregon. And yet she always, she admitted to herself, Oregon had always beckoned. How often in the old days she and Mother Gamelin spoke on that subject dear to both of them. Like she felt it was her fate to come here. Yeah. And Mother Joseph was also noted to be amused at the synchronicity of her friend, Bishop Abbey Blanchett, Augustine Blanchett's brother, being the man to escort her brigade of sisters to Vancouver. This is partially because Blanchett himself tried so hard to dissuade Emily Gamelin from joining the religious order herself, saying to Emily earlier, You are religious? You are no more meant to be a religious than I am to be a bishop. Famous last words, right? Like, he's like, no, none of us are going to do it. Guess what? All of them did it. Every single one of them. (laughs) So the five sisters left Montreal on November 3rd, 1856 to New York via rail car. They arrived in New York and ran into some snags. This is where my synchronicities with the nuns start. An ancestor of mine, whose name was Joseph Sadler, basically saved their bacon from a crummy hostel that they were hiding out at, dressed in old-fashioned donated clothing instead of their habits, because they'd heard these tales in Canada that nuns would be objected to terrible violence in America, Catholic nuns. So they were hiding and they were extremely uncomfortable hiding because they'd been women of the cloth for some time. So my ancestor Sadler shows up, springs them from this crummy hostel and then feeds them, takes them to a restaurant and says, hey, you can wear your habits. It's okay. No one's going to mess with you. And he puts them in a far better hotel where they're then safe. Mother Joseph specifically talks about what a relief it was that it was the last time she ever had to wear what she calls common clothing because she liked her preferred habit. So it's really interesting that somebody that's directly related to my blood was involved in giving her her habit back. And then... If that wasn't enough, (laughs) the brother of this Mr. Sadler that I'm related to married a woman named Anna. This Anna Sadler then later wrote a noted biography about Emily Gamelin. Emily Gamelin. Which we've both read. It's one of the best books about Gamelin out of there. Yeah, it's excellent. So it's pretty freaking weird. It's a super weird coincidence. It's weird. It's really weird. You know, that you knew none of this. No. And because of your digging, it just continues to unfold in front of us. All of these synchronicities and connections to family. It's a pretty weird coincidence for sure. And that's just one of the many family connections to this group of local settlers we have that are connected to Hidden Bricks. Right. This 1856 group had a smooth journey from New York to San Francisco. But once again, were challenged when on December 7th, an 18-hour storm lashed their ship on the journey from California to the Columbia River when things got really hairy. They described the terrifying ordeal as... 
There were moments when destruction were imminent, as if, to test our faith, heaven seemed deaf to our supplications. Ugh. So on the morning of December 7th, Blanchett, in his total desperation, promises a mass in honor of Mary, star of the sea, if they survive their journey. Additionally, Mother Joseph herself starts pleading and praying the cause of providence to the Apostle of the Sacred Heart, which is one of the things that she named herself after. She promised a novena if they were miraculously spared during this storm. Shortly after, they both are praying their asses off, the sea's calmed, and they're able to get through to Cape Disappointment and over to Astoria. So they arrive in Astoria around 8 p.m. on December 7th. The ship called the Brother Jonathan, which is also really interesting, it ended up having a shipwreck later. So they kind of like avoided that pitfall too. There's a whole treasure story about that ship. Anyway, so they left Astoria on December 7th on the ship Brother Jonathan for Fort Vancouver. And they arrived at about three o'clock the next day, which is when they walked up that muddy hill towards the fort. Now, we mentioned before that nothing was ready for the sisters' plan when they arrived, but fortunately for everyone, Mother Joseph was the daughter of a skilled carpenter and knew exactly what to do. The first night, they are camped in an old barracks and good-spiritedly clean up the filthy building and set up camp beds and blankets. As they cleaned the first night, Mother Joseph was stunned when she discovered among the debris in the old cabin an embroidered image of the Sacred Heart, once again proving God's providence. This was to her a sign that not only God, but her dear friend and guide, Mother Gamlin, was guiding her new journey. And she was able to relax a little, despite the awful conditions. Right. We're going to really get into Vancouver's Providence Academy in the next two episodes of Two Witches. This is, of course, the last remaining building that Mother Joseph built herself. And part of the complex is in danger due to a bunch of very greedy developers. She needs our help to save it. And we think that that might be why all this brick shit might have started. We can't wait to tell you all about that amazing building and the weirdness surrounding it. Another one of the things we have experienced is this forceful personality and energy that gets stuff done. Despite being terrified to lead her peers to the Oregon Territory, she moved forward in her heart feeling that God's providence would protect her mission. She deduced this by seeing events as greater signs of meaning. Hmm, that sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when meeting Bishop Bourget to come west to the Oregon Territory, her demeanor is noted as standing out as immediately singling her out as being the one in charge. It describes her. Among the five, neither the Bishop of Nesquali nor any other spectator would have had difficulty in singling out Sister Joseph, the lately named superior of the new providence to be in Vancouver. She moved now with vigor and purpose towards the railway carriage, managing the progress of the whole group with dignity and dispatch. Always busy, always on the move. Mother Joseph was also noted for having a strong but private faith. Of Mother Joseph's intimate intercourse with God, she said little and were not for copies of letters to her superiors, the only way her spiritual life would be known to us is only in its external manifestation. Her power in intercessory prayer was the weapon which she combated all difficulties, but the spiritual warfare waged over her own soul was the perpetual source of the hidden power which she renewed unceasingly at the expense of her strong nature. There's that word again. Hidden power. Hidden. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Again and again. Mother Joseph was always also mentoring others and liked teaching others and working with children and the disabled in particular and had a particular gift for working for difficult patients. This caught my attention, of course, because my father was one of those difficult patients, which was not of his fault, of course. 
They said about this, like any sensible woman, she was conscious of her own powers and she gave others credit for having the same balance of judgment. She knew none of that narrowness that fears to praise. She lauded generously and gladly because she identified with efficiency of service. She desired to have the sisters learn anything that might be of use in the community. It was impossible to come within the range of her influence without developing a new interest in some part. Made fascinating by her wide knowledge and personal enthusiasm. Amazing. So I wanted to go back just a little bit to the hidden power that we were talking about just a minute ago, because it just sort of dawned on me, a light bulb went off, Mm -hmm. that for me, part of the pull to Mother Joseph is that knowledge of hidden power that she sort of opened her eyes to, the fact that we all have this hidden power that we never tap because we're either embarrassed by it or we feel like we shouldn't be acting in a certain way or doing a certain thing. So I just, I kind of wanted to swing back because it just dawned on me that that hidden power is really part of my large interest in her. For sure. Yeah. And if you really think about, you know, these signs that she continued to divine through her life as being, you know, from God or signs of God's providence, they really were just synchronicities under her lens of her faith. Mm -hmm. So who was this six foot tall nun that has been slowly connecting us with all of our own hidden powers? You're going to get to know Mojo really well throughout the podcast and how she was critical to the growth of the Pacific Northwest. She had a special skill set learned by working in her father's carrot shop as a child that was critical to the mission survival immediately upon her arrival. If any other nun was in charge, the settlement here just wouldn't have happened. From an early age, Mother Joseph had a fascination with the West and deeply desired to work with Native and Indigenous people and felt it was God's purpose for her. Again, it was a noble pursuit to want to be helpful, but not without its issues, despite her good intentions. The local indigenous people probably were doing just fine without them. After Emily Gamelin's death, she was put in charge of the third attempt to send nuns to Fort Vancouver. There were already two that had failed. One brigade of nuns ended up in Chile, and the other ended up in Oregon City. Her cousin, Pierre Perzu, last name Americanized and spelled P-A-R-A-Z-O-O, worked for the Hudson Bay Company and settled in the Oregon City area. Oregon City and the Hudson Bay Company is linked to Elbridge Trask, my famous ancestor, which we will discuss in depth in a future episode. Oh yeah, Bridge is one of those ways that Andrea has been pulled right into this. And by the way, Mr. Trask uh, worked with John McLaughlin, so there you go. That's just a little uh, bit of a spoiler alert. Turns out my husband is actually <laughs> related distantly to four people that are involved with this story, okay? It's super weird. Anyway, Peter Perezu's offspring actually led to the creation of what ended up being the Chinook Indian tribe, the ones linked to the Chinook Winds Casino at the coast here in Oregon. All of the Perezus seem to cultivate strong relationships with native people around here. Mother Joseph was so respected by the indigenous people that she was actually called Chief of the Black Robes. It's really interesting that a woman was called Chief of the Black Robes, right? And you found some really interesting research that sort of linked that together for us. I did. I went digging. In the northwestern United States, female Indian leadership has never been unusual. Georgia George, chief of Washington's Squamish people, attributes this to the diversity of natural resources in the area. We always had so many different resources. The forests, the streams, the seas, fishing, hunting, timber, roots, berries, said George, whose grandmother was chief of the Squamish at the same time her grandfather was chief of the neighboring Kalama tribe. I think you'll find that in Indian societies where there was no predominant resource, there was no predominant role for women. They could make their own choices. And what does that mean, Sarah? It means they do what they want. (laughs) We do what we we fucking want. want. That's right. All right. (laughs) 
Isn't that awesome? Yeah. And John McLaughlin himself also married an indigenous woman. And the main reason Hudson Bay and the Catholics were so closely together was, of course, they weren't trying to exploit the natives on purpose. They weren't trying to cheat him. They weren't trying to sell them alcohol. Eventually, Mother Joseph arrived here in 1856 with Father Blanchette. We'll talk about the strangeness that seems to surround Augustine Blanchette on a future episode all about the St. James Cathedral here in Vancouver, the first hidden brick location Sarah took me to, and... Uh, I ended up with a synchronicity there also. So in 1871, Mother Joseph approached an ambitious businessman named L.M. Hidden on Hayden Island, Oregon, handing him a book on brickmaking. Wait, Hayden Island? <laughs> yep, that would be the place where I worked when I was started tweeting at John Tenney that we talked about in episode two, right? So this is how this works. Shout out to Tenney! <laughs> this tangled web is already starting to weave itself. Like we're seeing places already start to hook into each other, right? So on Hayden Island, Mother Joseph, with the aid of another nun translating for her, because Mother Joseph barely spoke English, so she had another English-speaking nun with her, she tells L.M. Hidden that she's heard he's a hard worker down on his luck, and she makes him a promise. If he starts a brick company with her so that she can have material for her projects, God will provide for them both. These bricks that Mother Joseph taught Mr. Hidden to make are the bricks at the center of this podcast, the antique red hidden bricks made from 1871 through 1992 in Vancouver, Washington. And of course, that first brick I ever found was that rare 1871. So I think this is the first time and the first sign that the founding of the brick company was itself linked to her. She needed me and wanted me to know that she was the run responsible. If it was a brick that just said hidden, like most of them do, I still would have bought it, right? And I still would probably be going down this journey. But 1871 was that I needed to focus on and needed to learn about. It's not the first time I missed her completely obvious signals, and I'm sure it won't be the last. In fact, I took a photo of what I thought was just a random shelf of books in the basement of the Clark County Historical Museum and Library, which is very haunted, just to get an idea of the space when I was there researching. I accidentally ended up taking a photo of a shelf of books that were all about her and the nuns that she worked with. I didn't even, I didn't realize that. Oh, really? I didn't, I didn't realize that you took a picture of a shelf with all the books about her and the nuns in there. Yeah. I, I had no idea. Um, I got these uber, super rare five volume books about the Sisters of Providence and their history that I bought from an older gentleman in Idaho that had received a bunch of books from a priest that passed away. And I was desperate for volume five of this book, which was basically the chronicles of Mother Joseph's life. The books are so old and so rare, you have to go to the state libraries to read them. And I was just going out of my mind needing this book to dig into it and start to connect some of this stuff together, you know, dates and times and places and these kind of synchronicities that were making me crazy. And I, I totally ran into these books. So after I figured that out, I was looking through my old photos from the very first time that I went to the Clark County Historical Museum and went to do my research for the first time. I hadn't even known about Mother Joseph yet. I went and I looked at the hidden brick file and I looked at that big, thick volume that W.F. Hidden had donated to the library and was focusing on Robert at that part because Robert was the last hidden that operated the brickyard. Mm -hmm. I haven't even looked at information about Mother Joseph in that building, but just to get an idea as to what the space looked like, I took, you know, a picture and right on that shelf was that nun book that I ended up losing my mind for and ended up needing so desperately and got later. And there's about three or four other books on that shelf too that I've bought. So right away, she's like, I'm responsible. I'm responsible. And we just didn't know. We missed it. I love that. So it doesn't surprise me. I I love the fact that you randomly are taking pictures. Has nothing to do with books. Has nothing to do with this nun. You're randomly taking pictures. And then later you go back 
Yeah. And you're like, that's oh, holy crap, it's right here. That, yeah. you know, synchro? Yeah. Not a coincidence. That's definite synchronicity. And the thing is, if that just happened one or two times, like it could be interesting. But if you keep listening, you'll see that this shit happens to us both every yeah. single yeah. day. Every day. So this is kind of like how it all works with her. You, you get these, you know, years, months or years down the road, you get these whoppers and it's like she's been trying to tell us what to pay attention to and we just didn't notice it. Yeah. And this is how kind of we can tell what the difference between a coincidence and a synchronicity is because why why would something like that happen, let alone happen 30 times in a row? You know what I mean? Like it does yeah. to us. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So these hidden breaks that Mother Joseph is responsible for brought stability to a liminal region and a liminal state. What's going on with the bricks themselves is going to have to be its own episode. They're that strange. So we're going to focus on the actual construction of them later. But divine providence was so important to Mother Joseph and these nuns that they actually named their order of sisters after it. So what is divine providence? Being led along a path by a higher power or something out of your control. A mystical message. This could be called synchronicity. If you look at it from a lens different from her faith, right? Divine providence pretty much ruled her life and Emily Gamlin's life also. So one of the interesting things that happened is the synchronicities Andrea and I are experiencing caused me to basically spoil her Christmas present for her this year. (laughs) Because... What happened is she came home from a thrift store yesterday. I don't even know how you even found it at the thrift store. What thrift store were you at? I went to Goodwill. The first time I've gone to Goodwill in, what, eight months? Okay. I have not been to Goodwill. I love myself a a Goodwill trip. Sometimes I go to Goodwill and I just can't stop myself. And so I was really, I was really on, on myself. But I couldn't leave it there. I couldn't leave it there. Picked it up. Knew it was old. It's pretty. It had a vibe to it. I even put other stuff back because I'm like, I'm not going to buy a bunch of shit because I already own a bunch of shit and I have too much shit. I put stuff back. I put yarn back. Oh my God. Don't buy yarn. I have so much yarn. Anyway. I put yarn back to buy it. And (laughs) if anybody knows how much I cannot not buy yarn. If you're a knitter, you understand. Okay. So I put yarn back. So that's how important. It was for me to purchase this item. And so I come home and I do some research because it's really cool. And it has a little painting of a hotel in Idaho. And I take a picture of it and I send it to Sarah and I go, okay, where are you from in Idaho? Where did you live in Idaho? Look at this. Isn't this cool? And And you're like, looks like it might be hidden bricks that were made up this building. It's too bad they knocked it down (laughs) in the 1960s. And I'm like. That's exactly what I said. (laughs) And I'm like, bitch, you're right. But guess what else? I'm about to ruin Christmas right now. Because I'm literally, and she's like, what? Tell me. Tell me. And I'm like, I'm like screaming. I'm just like screaming laughing. And I'm like, I, I just have to show you. And what I got for the major part of Andrew's Christmas gift this year, and I hadn't mailed it because I was so neurotic about mailing it because they're so fucking rare. I can't possibly replace it if something happened to it. She found this picture, this old China picture, that I know is from circa 1910 because I did research on the line from Great Western Tea Company, which is a precursor (laughs) to Kroger and Fred Meyer. And the reason that I know this is I had purchased another piece from that set for her for Christmas that had the St. James Cathedral, which is built from hidden bricks on the front of the plate. And much like my relationship with the Providence Academy, the St. James Cathedral is, quote, the hidden brick building for Andrea. Yep. The chances of finding 
I've literally only seen one other piece from this big set that existed in 1910. And it was just a little creamer that had Grant House from Fort Vancouver. So the chances of finding another one from this line are so astronomical, let alone finding it in a thrift store. Are you kidding me? And my daughter is with me and she's like, mom, come on. You have a million. You don't need that. I'm like, I need this. (laughs) And if you hadn't bought it, you never would have brought it home. Nope. And you Wouldn't probably would have forgot all about it and never connected it when you open your plate in a couple of weeks when we hook up. Nope. So you would have missed it. Absolutely. I would have missed it. You would have missed it. We would not have had this. But somebody else is like, you're buying that little tiny picture. <laughs> right. And what this really goes back to is Idaho is like a big thing for me. Um, I, uh-huh. I went to high school in Idaho and had a really bad time and got out of there and have been sort of avoiding it. And we keep getting these messages again and again and again and again that there's something in Idaho that we need to, or I specifically need to, dig into to go look. And I don't really like that. Uh-huh. But Mojo has made me too many other things that I don't really like either. So we're just going to kind of see what happens next year. So, yeah. We're going to see what happens in Idaho. Synchronicities can be fun, but sometimes they can fuck up your Christmas plans. So (laughs) take it for what it is. (laughs) If you guys, if anybody ends up buying your friends like the same shit for Christmas, like let us know because this is hilarious. Because as we've seen, this stuff seems to be contagious. Contagious. We're going to talk to Sage soon and a couple of other people that have had Mm -hmm. uh, weird shit happen since they've been bricked. Another one of these interesting things that's really happening is we're all showing up in each other's dreams. Um, Caitlin... (laughs) <laughs> Caitlin, if you're listening, I love you. She's put her team off. She's going to come talk to us, too. She uh, lives in Somerset. So she's got all oh. the deets on the hell you're well. And we have oh pieces of that hell you're well now, oh thanks God. to Miss Caitlin. But apparently I was in her dreams um, teaching Bollywood dancing the other night, which is incredibly Whoa. exciting, but I have no idea how to do, right? <laughs> but then Andrea was dreaming about me, too. I had a dream that Sarah and I were in high school together. She came up to me in the hallway and said, I'm moving back east. And I was like, damn it. Fuck you are. I was pissed, man. You know those <laughs> weird doors in high school? I slammed my way through that door oh. and walked outside. I was so pissed off at you. And I woke up and I'm like, god damn it. She better not be moving back east. I, You know, I have been having moving dreams for about a year and a half. I've had two, oddly enough, that I'm going to be moving to northern Washington, which I don't foresee happening, and moving to Michigan, which I definitely do not foresee happening. I was born in Michigan. So I think it's it's just, I don't know what this is all about, but it's interesting that we're having all of these moving dreams because mm-hmm. like, I have no plans to go anywhere, and I certainly have no plans to leave these damn bricks. You know what I mean? Like on top of everything else. And so if there's someone out there who talks about meanings of dreams, maybe we could talk to you and you could give us some insight on these dreams we're having. Right. One time too, I'm I'm, I'm trying to convince her to come talk to us. I don't know if she will. Uh, Miss Holly, who is a very talented um, diviner, actually. She was a liberal earth ambassador with us as well. And she kind of quit Twitter. So we don't get to talk to, to Holly as much as we did. But one time I did an ancestor ritual for mojo and paging her essentially and she went to holly amazing she kind of does this so i don't i never dream about my friends but my friends dream about me a lot 
So I don't know what that means, but I'm like hacking all of you guys. I'm really sorry about that. I like I annoy you when you're awake. I annoy you when you're asleep. I'm really sorry. I can't help it. It's just how it goes, I guess. So funny. I like it. Well, it's fine. You can be in all the dreams you want as long as you're not moving back east. Oh, fuck that. No, no way. <laughs> no, something's going to happen. <laughs> I hate snow. I hate snow. I yep. hate cold. Um, yeah. I... I like it out here. I, it's super chill. But yeah, it's super weird how that keeps happening. Well, now that we've discussed my uh, plans not to relocate, we can talk about the plans for the next couple episodes. We're going to get really into the Providence Academy and talk about your experience there, my husband's experience there, and some of the hauntings there. And until next time, take care of yourself. And don't be an asshole. Two Witches Podcast ain't nothing to fuck with. Two Witches Podcast ain't nothing to fuck with.